Welcome to the Waiting Room Revolution. Today, we speak with Dr. Daisy DeLay, a cardiologist and co-medical lead for the Physician Quality Program at Doctors of British Columbia for scaling up frontline projects. She has done work in quality improvement in cardiology, including communication around palliative care for advanced heart disease. We talk about what improving care looks like for heart failure and what the big picture of the illness looks like. Hi, I'm Sien Xiao. And I'm Sammy Winemaker. We talk to people who have information and tips on how to unlock a better illness experience. The waiting room revolution starts right now. Daisy, thank you so much. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. And thanks for having me. I'm very excited to be here. We're excited to have you. So you're a cardiologist with an interest in quality improvement around palliative care and helping people live better with advanced heart failure and heart disease. So what got you started in that? So when I first began my career, it was uh, general cardiology. And uh, as I was seeing patients through their journey, I started to realize there was a gap. And that gap was when um, disease-modifying medications had their limits and they were heading towards more symptom control I didn't have developed the skill sets in my training to be able to care for the, for that part of their journey. And um, where the challenges have been is where that jump is and who takes care of them at that point. And I realized that that was uh, something I wanted to learn more. And also when I observed my, um, when I, when I'd seen patients on the ward, I noticed that was also a gap when they were hospitalized and they were actively dying. And there was something that we could have done differently. And that was what um, prompted me to think, how could we do care better, particularly at end of life? And why do you think there is a gap between cardiology and palliative care? I think I said this to you before. And I was like, P is a, P is like the P for palliative is like a bad word in cardiology. And that was something that we were always like focused on. We have such tunnel vision for just throwing everything uh, the kitchen sink at, at patients um, when they're, we're trying to save them. And that's what we're, you know, like you look at the, you know, um, TVs or like media, cardiology is trying to save the day or cardiac surgeons are saving the day. Right. And, yeah, you know, it doesn't help that when there's a cardiac arrest, every nearly all of them are successfully resuscitated. And so it creates those expectations that are not, you know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> is there is there sort of a, a, a patient in your past that sort of inspired you to realize that uh, palliative care was something that was an important part of cardiology care? Yeah. Uh, there was another one that I really thought of that was really interesting because it was, he had amyloid <laughs> and basically... Um, his, his goal was to make it to a family event that was really important for him. And uh, because it was before the advent of new medications for amyl- cardiac amyloid, it was just symptom control, right? And so he was getting into renal failure as well. And so the family doctor, the nephrologist, and I said, well, what is our goal? And we said, you know, the patient has told us that he just wants to live to this, you know, family event that needs, he wanted to be part of. 
said, can we make this happen? And we said, well, try our best. And even so much as offering dialysis uh, in this setting. And we made it work that we did, saw him very frequently, like almost every six to eight weeks um, during that period of, um, I think it was six months. And he made it to that event. And it was heartwarming. Like he died three weeks afterwards. And to me, and I still have that picture, his, his wife sent me the picture of that event. And, that's, yeah. you know, like to me, that just speaks to what, what we need to do at the end of life is making sure that patients um, get to do what they want to do. Thank you for the work that you've done. It's important and it's incredible and it's filling such a gap, which leads me to my question. Why? Why is it that we train so many cardiologists who clearly are uber intelligent, highly trained, can do very sophisticated things? What is it about cardiology residency or internal medicine that continues to um, have this major gap in training. And it, it, even though it is reflected in the heart failure guidelines about the yeah. discussion of having goals of care and palliative care incorporated earlier into the trajectory of heart failure, mm-hmm. yes, it hasn't reached to the, the clinical bedside. And, yeah. and it is, the barriers are multiple. One is time constraints. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that we learned when uh, the work that we had done, as you've uh, um, alluded to, is no one's not clear who should be having these conversations. Mm-hmm. And when we had our multidisciplinary um, group to ask these important questions, one of the things that came back was, uh, maybe it's the family doctor. Oh, I thought it was the cardiologist that mm-hmm. does the discussion or the internist. So it's not very clear who does, who owns that. And mm-hmm. sometimes the way we communicate to patients, um, as specialists, we want to always provide that hope, but we mm-hmm. may not always, um, share what our internal thoughts might be on their um, prognosis. And that's yeah. where that miscommunication happens and the expectations um, may be misguided mm-hmm. because we haven't clearly defined that. And, and it, it all comes back to how we train, how mm-hmm. we communicate mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, really, ideally, cardiology residents, fellows should learn what a palliative approach looks like from their own cardiology faculty. And as long as we're still needing to send those residents to palliative care teams to learn it in quotations, uh, we still perpetuate that it's not integrated into cardiology uh, if they have to learn by another palliative care specialty team. So for me, that's one of the measurements when people no longer have to be doing rotations in palliative care, we know we've made it, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the yeah, the whole waiting revolution is born on the idea that it's everybody's business. Um, you know, the elements of early palliative care, including patients and families. And so one of the things that we coach uh, patients and families and advocate for them is to zoom out and to ask about the roadmap 
of their of their disease trajectory. And so I would love to hear your thoughts on, and I know this is part of the quality improvement project you've been working on with the doctors of BC, but to create a patient tool and a provider tool that has this roadmap of what is the storyline of heart failure, which has sort of the beginning, a middle, late, and end of life stage. So if it's okay, would, would it be okay if we kind of talk about these chapters? Like what is the early stage of heart failure look like? Well, early stages um, often will be uh, the symptoms of shortness of breath, um, particularly during exertion. They may have evidence of um, weight gain that is not related, that is due to water retention. They may feel fatigue. Um, and with disease-modifying medications, so we're talking about things like a beta blocker, um, ACE inhibitors or, and other medications that are um, heart medications that are specifically designed to help improve the, the, the um, heart uh, function. Um, that's, that's really, uh, uh, I guess, the pinnacle treatment that we are focusing on. And oftentimes these pa the patients when they develop heart failure um, acutely are sick with shortness of breath, they, they often get hospitalized and that's where they get identified as having a heart problem. And then they, they often will get better with the medication. So that's early stage. So what about middle stage? My understanding is they get on these medications, they're feeling better for some time, but then what happens next? Uh, as uh, unfortunately, because disease processes um, uh, still progress, these medications slow that progression but it still progresses. This is not a curable disease in most instances. And so when there's um, situations where there's hospitalizations related to heart failure, that a new baseline is established. And each time that takes a toll and that toll means that their quality of life is then further impaired and they become more symptomatic. So in addition to the shortness of breath and fatigue and not being able to sleep because they're they're feeling um, shorter breath. They may also feel, um, they may have other symptoms such as um, uh, the in a, uh, lack of energy and, and, and also not being able to, um, uh, able to, uh, <laughs> now I'm having this moment, a cognitive, they may have cognitive changes that can sometimes happen as well. And, and then their quality of life actually really does get impaired. But what we, and this is despite all the, the medical miracles that um, have happened in, in heart failure um, treatment. Um, and it's not just medications, there's also special pacemakers that help um, patients uh, with their hearts um, pump better. But the progression does occur in each, for individuals, it, it's the rate of progression differs. And what we are, and so makes that, that a challenge of knowing when those progressions are happening. Okay, so I get it, Daisy. We know heart failure will worsen. It's different for each person, and the ups and downs vary person to person. So in other words, the general storyline is known, but the timeline is different for each person. So how does a patient know when they are moving from the middle to the late stage of the illness. When we get into the middle and late stages, one of the th markers for us is the hospitalizations. You know, we know that 
the more hospitalizations occur, their survival rate goes down. And so those are the things that always tip me off is, oh gosh, one hospitalization, okay, what, what can I optimize in terms of the disease modifying medications? But then if there's a second one, then I'm thinking, gosh, I'm gonna have to really talk about goals of care conversations about what is it, what matters to them? What matters to their families? And having that conversation, not only with the patient, but with their families. And I really love to use the serious illness conversation um, and actually have a copy of it when I'm asking the questions, writing it down for them and sharing that with uh, giving them the original, but we're copying it and sending it to their family doctor so that, that that communication is clear that we are still trying to do the disease modifying treatment, but at the same time addressing the symptom control and the, the palliative pieces around that. I'm pretty upfront with my patients. Uh, I do tell them, for example, um, once rapport is established that, you know, as much as we can do, I give them the prognosis, depending on what, how much they want to know. But it is hard to, you know, it is shock to many people that the prognosis for five years is still 50% in heart failure. And so we need to, we are doing a disservice when we're not sharing information about that so that patients and their families can plan accordingly. We always want to do the best. Mm -hmm but we also want to prepare for any, uh, you know, uh, unfortunate situations such mm -hmm. as hospitalizations and further declines. And finally, how do we know when we are moving from the late stage to the end stage of the disease? I mean, what are the signs to look for then? So, uh, you know, for patients and their families, one of the things that um, helps them to understand is that they're becoming more symptomatic despite their medications and they may have a, a lower blood pressure, they may have, um, and, and despite changes to titrate their medications to um, combat that, the symptoms, they're still um, having those symptoms. They're feeling more fatigued. They may actually have changes in their appetite and losing some muscle mass because they can't exercise like they used to. Um, hospitalizations is a very good marker too, um, to know. And then the other um, objective ways is if they drop in their ejection fraction, which is a measure of heart function. So there's ways to look at it from a subjective, but also objective. Um, and as we go into the middle to the late stages, what we found was there wasn't a lot of information for patients and their families to understand what that looks like. What does that mean? Um, and what, uh, what things can they do to start preparing themselves for more active symptom control? And so that was one of the focuses. And when we are heading towards more active palliative um, pieces, it's actually where, you know, uh, we're starting to use more of the diuretics to help support their breathlessness and maybe even contemplating opioids, um, small doses, if we need to. That's really end stage. But um, sometimes it is a challenge because the, uh, there's comorbidities. So there's other associated medical problems. And we know from the literature that patients with advanced heart failure also have 
typically three to four other chronic diseases. So it's all in conjunction. So their heart, as their heart failure progresses, their kidneys start to fail more. So there's, a, you know, so there's all these other markers that point us towards that. And so, um, so that's where you'll see the family doctor or the, the cardiologist or internist saying, hmm, like the kidney function's starting to get declined. Uh, we may have to make some adjustments to the medications, but it's, it's a balance. If we're trying to um, keep the lungs dry because of heart failure, that's at the cost of the kidneys. And so it's those discussions um, and, and we see that. And as you know, we enter the, the late stages, that shortness of breath really becomes more problematic. They might swell in their stomach uh, particularly, or they might develop fluid around their lungs that need to be drained sometimes because even the diuretics may not um, uh, resolve those. So it's all these other things that have happened. And we, we then focus more on diuretics and um, uh, trying to get the fluid off or um, draining the fluids where they might be. Those are signs that we're heading towards late and then we're talking about deprescribing. Okay, hold on a second. Sorry to interrupt. But what do you mean by deprescribing? I think I've also heard it called de-escalation of medicine too. So what do those terms mean? I find this challenging myself. Um, de-escalation of medis- medications or mm-hmm. deprescribing when mm-hmm. it's active. Um, palliation. And, or, you know, not like weeks, not the days to, to death, but rather the months before death and which ones to take off, particularly, you know, things like, uh, um, for example, like amiodarone, which is a medication that we use sometimes for suppressing arrhythmias. Um, and having those conversations with the family, what that means if we were to take those off. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It, so I, 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 for me, when, when I come to these conversations, it's really important for me to understand what the patients want, what their mm-hmm. families understand too, because I think having these conversations in isolation without their families is really a disservice mm-hmm. for them too. Another thing that we didn't talk about yet, which is deactivation of a, a defibrillator if they have one. And that often is really done late too. And, you know, it's not a common story to hear patients who are in their dying um, days to weeks um, having to come to the hospital to get their defibrillator deactivated. And it's, it, it breaks my heart to think like, wow, we could have done that months ago. And that here, this is the time where it's crucial for them to be spending their time with their loved ones. But yet here they are being transported by ambulance and a non-critical um, uh, medical transport system to be able to get their device deactivated. And it's, it, we could do things differently. We definitely yeah. I recall you telling me that at end of life, the patient and family will also notice major changes in their ability to do things uh, they need for their daily living. So it might start with things like challenges to being able to cook or clean their house. And then that will eventually uh, change to more uh, basic things like dressing, 
feeding themselves, toileting on their own. And besides those physical things, are there other things that a patient and family can expect? Yeah, so there, there's a lot of, you know, it, it sometimes is non-specific. So I think that um, it, it is hard, but sometimes we do notice that there's increased risk of um, depression because, it, you know, they lose their independence. There's now being more dependent on, on their, um, their family members or their loved ones um, to do more of the work. They're, they're starting to withdraw. Um, so they become socially isolated. Um, and, and so there's those things, the appetite, um, they, and, and so there's all these other factors to consider and they may not have the same energy to get to the, even to the bathroom. So, you know, sometimes the commode needs to be next to their bed because they're on diuretics and they can't make it in time. Um, and then, uh, diet is really important because if it's not, you know, having, having a dietitian consultation is really important because that still ensures that the nutrients that, you know, reviewing their diets to ensure that the nutrients they're getting are uh, enriched enough to be able to support them through this process. Um, because there is such a thing as cardiac cachexia as end stage happens. And it's, um, and so there is opportunities to make changes. And the evidence is that if you have a dietary consultation, you might actually reduce hospitalizations. And it's the same true with um, cardiac rehab. Even though mid to late stage heart, fail, uh, heart failure, cardiac rehab is still recommended and it is still helpful. So uh, I encourage my patients to try to do anything that gives them joy, even if it is just dancing, getting up and dancing to their favorite song, because that's better than nothing. Mm -hmm, for sure. I love your honesty and your gentle, frank way of sharing the reality and the truth about the heart failure journey. I've spoken to lots of cardiologists and they're not all like you, Daisy, just so you know. Um, you know, it, when I was going through medical school, we were learned that once you have heart failure, if it's not just a one-off and fixed, and if you continue to have heart failure, the average life expectancy of someone with heart failure with an underlying progressive illness um, that can't be fixed is somewhere between five and 10 years. Some cardiologists would tell me today that, oh, that dial is really moved. Um, you know, with new medications and with our quadruple disease modifying agents um, and new research every day, huh, heart failure is now just a chronic illness. It's not progressive and life limiting. People can live on and on and on and on and on. So I say to myself, how many people actually can get on the quadruple therapy at the doses that they would need to be on to modify the illness, to change the average prognosis. My understanding is many people come up against side effects of the medications or complications. And in an ideal research world, yes, if we can do that, maybe people live longer, but in the real world, it's not easy for people to get on all that medication 
comply with all the medication, comply with the dietary and the fluid restrictions. And so in my world out here, I still go by this population prognosis of somewhere between five to 10 years Mm -hmm. and they'll be outliers. Am I off or is that accurate? You're describing what I, I, see as the gap between what we find in research and what is reality um, and outside of an academic centers. Um, I'm a community-based cardiologist and- Well, that explains everything. (laughs) Exactly, because community doctors are real. (laughs) They're practical. They, um, it's a different, specimen a community I'm a community doctor so I can say that as well but we see the reality of these things you know and how they play out in the real world absolutely I I fully support it I think the reality is that um, you have to meet where the patients are there's a lot of barriers to trying to reach those quadruple um, treatments Um, and when you're talking about the quadruple um, treatment that is um for example, a beta blocker, an ACE inhibitor, or um, scutal valsartan, um, a uh, mRNA, uh, MRA, um, such as spironolactone, and the last one is the SGLT2 inhibitors. We know now that we should be trying to um, titrate little um, doses of each and try to up titrate them as best as we can as soon as we can. We know that's the best in terms of um, trying to uh, give patients the best opportunity for prognosis. In the the challenge in this, in the real world now is workforce um, shortages. Um, Trying to do this in the community, if you don't have a heart function team, that's often you doing everything, trying to titrate these medications. So there are limitations in trying to get this, and that's a barrier. There are definitely opportunities for quality improvement and, set, uh, and also with the ad, um, increased use of virtual care that can help with um, changing that prognosis. So I think I, I do have some hope. Um, I, I think you know it is um, very exciting that there is new and wonderful um, therapies that are available for heart, um, heart function improvement, but um, it, it still is that gap of um, trying to um, get these medications to, um, uh, to their fullest doses, because mm-hmm. yes, there are uh, side mm-hmm. effects. Um, the other piece that we don't talk about is the expense. Um, and yes, some of it is covered by provincial drug plans, but it sometimes is according to their financial needs. And so that becomes also a barrier. And if it's not covered by, even though it may be recommended by guidelines, they may not be covered by the provincial mm-hmm. plan. So mm-hmm. that's another barrier. And, uh, you know, we, we often encounter that challenge as well. And, but even, even if you can afford it or get it covered and titrate it and someone tolerates it, it is still a progressive illness. Absolutely. It's just going to progress a little bit slower or later. 
Um, it might extend life expectancy and hopefully quality of life, but you will not live out your natural life um, in the same timeline once you have heart failure. Yeah. And, and one of the things that is um, the side effect of um, the medications, and it's not, I'm not saying that we shouldn't do this, but we have traded um, sudden death as a cause of, um, of uh, heart, heart disease or heart failure. Um, okay, let me ask you that about that. Yes, yes, yes. Let's talk about that. So because, okay, so explain. Well, before we didn't have as many medications and um, medications that help uh, heart disease. And with that, we know that patients are not dying from, suddenly, um, except in, in those who, one of the areas that we haven't made any, that, that much of an impact is those who had not been identified as having heart disease before, but their first cardiac event was their final event. Those who have survived their cardiac event, um, the medications and the therapies and the procedures that we have now in our back pocket have allowed people to live longer, but it is, as you said, um, at the expense of um, quality of life at times because mm -hmm. they may not, they may still struggle with um, symptoms that are not, not for example, shortness of breath um, that is at baseline that won't change despite being on the, the best mm -hmm. medications. Um, so it, it is that trade-off. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, there are medications that we're using or devices that we're using to prevent sudden mm -hmm. death. And so that becomes a tricky conversation when we're thinking about end-of-life care. You know, I've heard cardiologists describe themselves as interventionists meaning they want to do stuff and intervene to try to save a life. And I think this is part of the challenge that reflects modern medicine, that it is so fast-paced, fast medicine, you know, whereas palliative care or a palliative approach has been referred to as slow medicine. I wonder if you have a story of how you knew when to switch from fast to slow medicine. Yeah, um... I think there's several stories that come to mind, but the first one is uh, one in which uh, I was uh, the MRP uh, and this patient was on the ward and um, had significant heart failure and he had been hospitalized for a number of years, a uh, number of weeks rather, sorry. Um, and when I, it was my second day of meeting him and he looked so tired. And in my mind, just like any usual typical cardiologist of trying to throw the kitchen sink, I was ready to transfer him to the coronary care unit for up titrating more medications to try to stabilize his heart failure. But he knew more about his condition than anybody that was treating him in that he knew he was dying. And it was so impactful that he as I was talking to him, he stopped me and he said, I'm ready to go. And he also turned to his wife and said um, the same. And so the plan um, changed, but it, it really stopped me in my tracks. And uh, I had a learner with me and it was a great opportunity to have a conversation with uh, the patient and their family and his family about what the goals were that day which was 
he wanted his family around him when he died, and which is what we make, um, made happen. And when I looked at the literature, it's not surprising to me that cardiology is late to the game when it comes to palliative care and discussing that, or even goals of care rather. You know, the literature says that um, often we're having these conversations days to hours before they die. And I, I bet, Sammy, you could probably relate to that experience. And so that became my purpose and my interest in uh, palliative cardiology is trying to move that needle. Um, and I was able to um, find a partner in crime, and that was Dr. Jody Anderson, um, who's a palliative care physician. And we wanted to work on this because we both identified that gap. I think that that is what screams out for me is just how very patient and family centered that whole story is. Because, I mean, the tension is that as someone, you know, a, a cardiologist who, you know, may treat the heart and want to make the heart <laughs> the best that it can be for as long as possible and the medications that will help with that, et cetera, et cetera, that um, you find yourself at all these crossroads and it's not so easy to just focus on the heart and the medications that are best for the heart. There's all these other uh, adjacent problems. And then those are all tucked into a human <laughs> and you're a very person-centered physician. And so that gentleman got very person-centered care and died on his own terms. You allowed him to have maximum control over his experience when there was no possibility to control the actual illness. Um, and so you changed his experience, even though we can't change the heart disease uh, at the end, you know? And you collaborated so beautifully with all the other partners. And I think what I also heard is just how tight knit you were with the other specialists, the family doctor, the patient, the family, and um, everyone knew their role and who was on first, who was on second and, you know, who to call. And most of our patients are craving that kind of concrete information. Like they feel the unspoken shifting of roles, but no one's really talking about it. Like, what is the role of my nephrologist at this point? What's the role of my cardiologist? What's the role of my family doctor? What's the role of this nurse or that nurse? They feel something changes over time, but they can't quite put their finger on it. And it makes them nervous. And instead of moving out, you leaned in. Yeah, part of good care is being patient-centered and following the needs or wishes of the patient. And one of the questions we hear a lot from our listeners who are clinicians is that they feel patients don't want to know. They want to be hopeful and they want to live day to day and they don't like to talk about the future. So in other words, it's the patients who don't want to walk two roads. And I'm curious, has that been your experience that most patients and families don't want to take you up on your offer to know more? I'm in the journey of uh, learning more around culturally safe care 
And I think that's the, the question um, around um, are patients and their families willing to wanting to hear this? It really depends on what where uh, what kind uh, what cultural background they come from, because not every culture wants. Uh, I guess that's that's one of the things like I try to assess is is there a readiness to accept this? Um, and so the questions where the serious illness conversation helps is that it kind of teases that out a little bit. Um, how much of their illness do they want to know? How much have they shared with their family members? And how much, you know, like, and, and so to me, that helps me to understand. And, you know, there has been tricky situations where everybody else but the patient knows their prognosis and they don't want, you know, the care provider to share that. That's a really awkward scenario but that may be what the cultural norms are for that particular group that they belong to or the community that they belong to. So it's, it's really, I struggle with sometimes with that, to be honest, to meet their needs at the same time when I'm, I feel mm -hmm. like I'm, I'm, I'm trying to do the best service for that patient and mm -hmm. providing the information. So, um, you know, I, I don't want to generalize, but at the same time, what we had learned from the work that Dr. Anderson and I had done with the, um, the uh, late stage um, information for providers and patients was that patients and their families want to know. Um, they want to know clearly. They, their preference is probably from their family doctors, to be fair. Mm -hmm. Part of it is because the way communication is done uh, by the specialists is often um, at a higher level, like high level, where mm -hmm. as, but the other piece is that their primary care providers have an established long-term relationship mm -hmm. with them mm -hmm. and that they feel safe mm -hmm. with, to be able to ask these questions and say, what's their prognosis? But often the problem is we don't talk about um, partly because we assume that they're not ready to have these conversations mm -hmm. um, so that's the general gist but again mm -hmm. we also have to keep in mind and keep um, you know the cultural scenarios in mind mm -hmm. as well you know all of that just emphasizes another key of ours customize your order and a little bit of know your style, which is the idea that you need to bring yourself forward, bring who you are forward and your preferences and make them known. Because if you know how you like information or how you want to cope, telling that to your provider team is only going to make your care more personalized. In my practice, I would say that definitely the overwhelming majority of people when I tell them I have more information about your situation uh, and I can help you understand the future and what to expect and how things will unfold. Is that something that you would be interested uh, in knowing as well? Most people say, are you kidding me? Yeah. Are you kidding me? Of course, we've been waiting to hear information. I just either assumed the doctor would tell me or I've asked all them. I keep getting the runaround. Yeah. Um, majority of people say they want to know 
And then I go on and I say, you know, for better or worse, yes, just tell me. I can deal with whatever, but I, I can't deal with not knowing. Um, and it's better to know than to not know, no matter what, uh, for, mo for many people, not everyone, but for most people, I would say that's the case in my, in, my, in my professional life. In terms of balancing culture and the individual, I feel exactly the same way you do. My approach is always to... Uh, ask the patient, uh, I have families, let me say that, of course, say, you know, we don't want our loved one to know X, Y, or Z in our uh, home or our culture or our religion or our family. This is the way we do it. We don't do it this way. And I say, thank you so much for sharing that with me. It's so important for me to understand the vibe <laughs> uh, in this home. Yeah. Uh, is it okay with you if I ask uh, your loved one some general questions just to check in with them? And most of them say, yeah, that's okay. And usually in front of the family, I will ask the, the person who everyone thinks doesn't know, uh, <laughs> you, know um, you know, how are you doing? Uh, how are you feeling today? Do you have any questions about what's happening? Um, is there anything you want to know about what's going on? Or what's your understanding of where things are at? Um, is there anything on your mind? So I might ask these questions. I'm not dishonoring what they've told me in the driveway, which is don't tell them anything. Don't do I'm just checking in. <laughs> and, you know, most of the time the patient themselves will come right out and say, well, I know I have cancer. The family's like, <gasps> she knows, <laughs> or, you know, or something like, I think I'm dying. <gasps> Who said the D word? You know, people tend to know something's up. Yeah. Most people, you know, know something's happening. And many people will say, you know, thank you for asking me. Um, sometimes patients are protecting their family by not asking and they're just being quiet and polite and everyone thinks they don't want to know. So don't tell them, but we have this charade going on where the family's protecting the patient and the patient's protecting the family by pretending everything's okay. And yeah. then there's this silence between them. So you're right. It is um, a skill to, to help bridge that gap for patients and families to communicate with each other, always respecting that every patient and family are going to do it differently. Yeah. I'm fine if patients say, you know, I don't want to know you yeah. just speak to my family, da, 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 as long as they were given the choice. Yes, absolutely. I, I also think, and I'd love to hear your thoughts as well around clinician to clinician um, conversations, because that's another gap. Um, and I don't think from my own experience of what, uh, when I've been training, we haven't always communicated that piece in our letters and, and, um, trying to explain, well, this, the, you know, Dr. Mr. So-and-so or Mrs. So-and-so has, um, symptomatic heart disease, uh, I am worried about the prognosis that we have, we should be having these goals of care conversations. It's not as explicit as we think mm -hmm. it is. Um, 
I, I, I've struggled. Um, you know, I, I, I worry about how much am I stepping on somebody's toes when I do those conversations? Mm -hmm. or, and and would that be better off with primary care? But at the same time, if they don't know what I'm thinking, we may not be providing um, accurate information to the families as well, or patients and their families. You know, it, it's such an important point because the clinicians rely on the consult notes that they're able to read. Uh, and some specialists, my experience has been, when they do their consult note, they're really dictating their consult note for themselves so that they can remind themselves the next time they're going to see them, the patient, what they did, what they were thinking, what was the state of the union and the baseline, the last visit. So a cardiology report will say, you know, blah, 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 you know, the E, the ECG said this, and their echo said this, and their potassium was this, and this is their blood work. And, you know, I did this and I did that, and this was their weight and blah, 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 blah. There's all these data points that you understand as a cardiologist so that when you see them the next time you can look back at your last consult note and you get it, <laughs> but the other clinicians get that note and they're like, okay, so what? Yes. So what? What's missing from the consult notes is the so what? The meaning of it. Uh, family doctors and, and me as a palliative care physician, I am searching consult notes to say, give me a pearl. <laughs> give me a, give me a sign. Yeah, Tell yeah. me the meaning of that. I don't care that you've done this or that with the medication. What does that mean? That's helpful for you. What does it mean for me? So, I mean, peppering into the consult notes and I did this because, or, mm. and the significance of this is, or I've covered this topic today. This person would benefit from the following topics. I will leave this part to the family doctor who apparently knows them well, because part of the assessment of the cardiologist might be, what's your relationship with your family doctor? Mm -hmm. Do you feel comfortable having big discussions with your family doctor? But I do think that when we rely so much on the consult notes being the, the pigeon that carries the information back and forth, I think we have to relook at how we write consult notes and dictate them who's benefiting from them. Yeah. And especially where, you know, we're using EMRs, the um, pros is not always um, used as much because it's click and yeah, a lot of it's drop down menus. Potentially. Yeah. You lose the nuances from that too. When the specialist, when I read a, a letter from a consulting cardiology and they say, you know, we had a really big conversation today. I've explained to them that, you know, we're at this juncture here. And, um, you know, if we do this, then this will happen. If we do that, then this will happen. Uh, we talked about, you know, the prognosis at this point, you know, they understand that, 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 like, you know, I'm like, oh, this is incredible. I love this. Who is this cardiologist? I have to find them. <laughs> <laughs> it's so helpful. Yes. We eat it up. We eat it up. And I think the other thing is not only the prognosis, but it's also asking, and I've made it a habit to look to the care care um, in um, who comes to the visits too, because yeah, caregiver burnout is huge. Huge. And 
you know, you could have not one patient in the hospital, but two. Yeah. If the care is the first to de uh, decline in health, right? And yeah. so um, if they have primary care and they both have the same provider, I might actually add yes. there saying, I'm really worried about, you know, their, the caregiver because this is what's happening. Yeah. Are there opportunities to have more home care or mm -hmm. other um, services that might relieve uh, the burnout? Because I think it is important that we, we tend to forget about the caregivers. Yeah. We, we talk a lot about the caregivers being in the shadow of the diagnosis or the person mm -hmm. with the illness is in the spotlight and the spotlight needs to widen to include the person sitting right beside them or behind them. Um, and I love that you give a shout out or cred to the caregiver because they're sitting there quiet. They're quiet about their own experience as a caregiver and how that's impacted their own life and health. And they're also quiet about the intel that they could bring about the person in the spotlight. They're not utilized as really part of our care team. And they're the ones who have the skinny on the patient for the 23 and a half hours that they're at home and not in the clinic. And so they're underutilized. And of course, COVID shone huge light on the fact that caregivers are a very important layer uh, that without them present, we're scuppered. Yes, that's so true. Yeah. And if they don't have a direct primary caregiver, one of the things that we've learned from our work was that they're, the neighbors are a critical yes. part of their support team. Yeah. Too. yeah. And so sometimes it's, you know, with permission of the patient, I will call a neighbor to, you know, because it is important to ensure like, are they eating okay? You know, how, how are they managing at home? What if you mm -hmm. observe? Because mm -hmm. I think sometimes we aren't always getting the full picture uh, in, in the clinic visit. And while, you know, like I struggle doing a 15 minute visit with these, these patients, I see mm -hmm. them at 30 minutes um, to get that, that view and looking at mm -hmm. it from a, um, a whole person's perspective, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Daisy, we are almost at the end of time. Is there something you wanted to talk about that I didn't get to ask you? Oh, okay. I did want to touch on one thing, if, if that's mm -hmm. okay. And yeah, please with, do. With the primary care shortage, um, the onus will be falling on specialists. And it's not just the cardiologist. It can be respirology where they might have an end-stage COPD, a patient with um, end-stage COPD that needs that conversation, but they don't have primary care. So we need to learn to have these conversations in during the primary care crisis, mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. uh, otherwise, uh, you know, we are going to be further causing harm by not allowing them to have a quote unquote good death. Mm -hmm. That yeah, is absolutely. such an important point. Oh my goodness. Yeah, it's everybody's business for sure. That, I, I, I did want to not shade the, the community too much, but I think there is change it's slowly happening it's like the cargo ship that needed to change direction it's slowly happening and, and the the p word is being mentioned more and more when we have multidisciplinary rounds when we're discussing cases of patients that have challenging cardiac issues and um 
when I first came here in 2011, that was not something with, that was openly discussed as an option. But now it is bringing up, being brought up as if this, you know, intervention or cardi uh, surgery is not a, a great option, then um, symptom control is is being discussed. Daisy, thank you. We'd like to end our interviews with, um, do you have any advice from your experience for patients and families on how to improve their, you know, their illness journey? Um, my favorite um, book that I recommend to patients um, and their families, as well as uh, the medical professionals that I work with, um, is uh, Dr. Atul Gawande's book about being mortal. And I think it really um, explains that we have to take, you know, look at um, care of the elderly differently, particularly at the end of life. And uh, the other piece is I let patients, um, you know, uh, and their families look at the questions. And if they're not ready to do that, but look at the questions for the serious illness conversation so that they can have that conversation with their family members. Bye-bye. Thank you, Daisy. Thanks so much for, for sharing all your insights with us. Thank you, and thank you for having me. I'm so glad to be part of this. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe if you haven't already. You can visit our website, waitingroomrevolution.com, to learn more about our movement and how you can join in. The podcast is produced by myself, Kayla McMillan, Valerie Bishop, Shilpa Jyothi Kumar, and Maggie Sivak. Our theme music is Maypole by Ketsa. <laughs>